Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. <laughs> Welcome to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. And I'm Wajah Dali. And we are very excited to be joined by our guest today, who is a journalist from Chicago and author of the acclaimed novel High Rises, Cabrini Green and the Fate of American Public Housing, and the author of the new book, Parole Prison and the Possibility of Change, Ben Austin, uh, joins us on Democracy-ish today. Um, Ben, we will we will jump right in with you and say that prison system in the United States and talking about the prison industrial complex and what prisons are actually supposed to do, we don't really ever have a conversation about parole and what happens to people once they leave the system or, and I say leave and I'm using like quotation marks. So first off, you know, what made you want to focus on parole and corrections as a part of this larger prison industrial complex? Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for that question. And thanks for having me on the show. Uh, you're exactly right. I mean, uh, and, and this is partly why I, I got into this, that, that I learned uh, somebody that I had written about before was, was coming up for parole before a parole board. And I was like, what do I know about parole boards? Like, I hadn't really heard much you know, conversation about it. You know, you hear like, you might think of like Shawshank Redemption, that movie of like the parole board scenes there. So I drove to Springfield. I'm in Illinois. And I just started sitting in these parole hearings. And they raised all these questions that I thought were critical for our understanding of, of prisons. Um, you know, a parole board decides whether to release people from prison after they've served long sentences which gets at this idea of like, well, what is the point of prison? Like, what do we want a prison sentence to do? You know, we call our prisons correctional institutions. The guards are called correctional officers. Do we believe in corrections? Do we believe in second chances? Do we believe in rehabilitation? And, you know, so this, this question, like we, we imprison more people than anywhere else in the world, a quarter of the world's population. This question of like why we do it, um, I found this window onto that question through through parole hearings. 
Uh, speaking about parole hearings and speaking about uh, corrections, that's the title of your book, Corrections, but I think there's it, uh, does, does a, a remarkable phrase uh, that perhaps the system needs some corrections. But, you know, I think the numbers are important because, you know, this is personal to me. I've shared this on this podcast before. I'll share it again. You know, both my parents were uh, formerly incarcerated people. They both went in. Uh, they had a case. They were in for a year before I could get uh, the appropriate funds to get them out. Then they uh, fought that case for like nine years. It went all the way to the Ninth Circuit. They lost the case. Then they both went to prison for four and a half years. Then they both got out. And I saw firsthand how hard it is to transition, right? Uh, they From prison, people forget. People think, oh, they walk out the prison gates and you look back and you smile at the guards like in the movies. They, my father first went to a halfway house. At the halfway house, he had a curfew. He had to make it back in time for the curfew. Thankfully, I was there. I was able to drive and give him rides. But there were people there, you know, who had to go get a job, even though they just got out of prison and had to ride the bus system. You know, my mom had an ankle bracelet. There are all these layers in this labyrinthine prison industrial complex that people don't know about. And before, I, before we get a little bit deeper into it, I just want to give people the numbers because you, you briefly mentioned it, but I don't think people realize how supersized we are, not just with our meals, but with our prison industrial complex, right? Uh, last time I checked, Ben, correct, if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, you said America imprisons more people than any other nation on earth. Uh, I'm an English major. Math is not my forte, but uh, we don't have the population of India and China, correct? We have about right, 300 yeah. million. They have a billion. But we imprison 2.2 million or is it 2.3 million? It's, it's 1.2 in prisons and another 800,000 in jail. So right now about 2 million. Yeah. And that's right, down and for, yeah. How many people are on parole? Oh, another uh, something like 800,000 and you take probation. It's, it's in the, another, you know, couple million. So, and then he, what's the next yeah. step? How many people are formerly, formerly incarcerated people? Oh yeah. I mean, we have just immense numbers. I mean, you're exactly right. So like to think of us, imprisoning one in four incarcerated people in the world uh it makes it makes it's an aberration both globally and it's also an aberration in our own history up until 1973 the start of mass incarceration so mass incarceration turns 50 this year we had 200,000 people in all prisons state and federal and that number was actually really steady for most of the 20th century um so we're doing something that that is abnormal both for every country, but also for our own history. And Danielle, this was my follow-up question real quick. I say all this and to ask you, because you've done the work, has this made us safer? And Ben, that's for you. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, thank you for sharing that story about your parents, first of all. I mean, that's very powerful. And the answer is no. I mean, we're, you know, we raised prison numbers as crime went up and also as crime went down. And the, 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 the collateral damage of prison, of, of, of using this mechanism, which is sort of a last resort, it should be, of punishment um, for people's lives, as you were saying, uh, for communities, uh, for costs, everything, it does not make us safer. safer. It's destroyed communities. Um, 
you know, and this is this is part of thinking about parole because it's thinking like this correction, as you said, it's also like we could do better. We could correct our society. And uh, yeah, and what you're describing about your parents, just the rational system that we have that people who, you know, we think of like doing your time, you know, you've done your time and then you've been released. So you've been vetted by a, a legitimately by some board or by the system. And then for us to set people, set people up to fail, to yeah. not want people to succeed, to, to still deny them, not just rights, but also access to all these things, which are, were part of thriving, a, a job, uh, housing, healthcare, um, you know, movement, um, dignity. Um, we should do that not just because we're human beings, but because it makes sense financially and it makes sense in a safety way. You know, a quarter of all people who are actually go back, who are in state prisons now, or people who are entering, are there not for committing a crime, but for some technical violation of their parole, of their supervision. What? Like, we're not locking up the dangerous people. We're locking up you know, one of four people locked up here is because we have all these onerous rules. There are like 45,000 of these restrictions on people who leave prison. And we're locking up people because they, they can't follow uh, a litany of, of very difficult rules to follow. You know, I, I find what 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 makes me so troubled about this is that when, you know, Waj, and I, and I thank you for laying out the numbers in the way that you did um, so that our listeners can really understand that when you're talking about one in four people, right, and you're saying that one in four people um, are have had either been incarcerated or on parole or have some involvement um, with the prison industrial complex, it makes me wonder, Ben, how are we so distorted in our understanding of how this system actually works if so many people have been through the system. So we say things like, you pay your debt to society. Your time has been served, right? But yet we've been programmed to believe that if you're behind bars, you are a bad person, right? Yeah. Like you deserve to be punished. You deserve to have food that is inedible. You deserve to be in a halfway house. You deserve to have to check a box, right? Which is why we had the whole ban the box across uh, across the country and in, yeah. in many states so that folks could get a job. Because like to your point, it is as if we just set people up to fail. So how is it that 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 this narrative has continued given that so many people have personal involvement or familial involvement, community involvement with this system, but yet the, the, the stereotypes and the, and the false narrative continue. Yeah. I mean, so this is, I'll answer, and this is a way, like almost a plug for my book, but my book is a very narrative driven book that focuses on two people who uh, have been in prison since the 1970s. And they it's really their like saga of coming up for parole. They've been coming to up for parole going to a parole board for almost 50 years. And it's through their stories of kind of animating their, their worlds um, to make them, you know, just to see what their experiences are really like. And, and that's the answer, because in a way, they, the way we're able to do this is because we think about people who commit crimes as ideas, as abstractions. We, we think about them through fear and as monsters. And this has a, this, very clearly has a racial component. 
you know, of whom we think of as victims and who we think of as victimizers is very racially coded, um, mostly black and white. And, and so by, by falling into that trap of, of fear and, and monsters and danger, we're able to sort of think of like just removing, you know, removing this cancer, removing these danger. What else could you want to do but like get rid of the boogeyman? Um, in some ways, I think the anecdote is, you know, you know, my book is one contribute contribution of many, many of saying like, no, 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 we actually have to see the real people who are suffering from these extreme sentences and to think about like, well, is that what we want? Um, uh, we can't think of someone, even somebody convicted of murder, even people convicted of violent crime, like people convicted of violent crimes. We have to think like, well, okay, people committed a violent crime. Um, you know, what do we want them? What do we want a prison sentence to do? What do we want to accomplish? And what does it mean? How do we want them to return to society um, as, as better people, uh, better prepared to, to, to be part of our world? Um, and so, yeah, to kind of um, combat this sort of monstering uh, of, 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 even, of even people who commit violent crimes, because um, if we're going to if we're going to do anything to to change mass incarceration, uh, the majority of people in prison are there for for committing violent crimes, not as, you know, uh, some some people would say of like at least we could at least we could do something different for nonviolent drug offenders, but but that's not enough. From the New Yorker staff writer Vincent Cunningham, a keenly observed novel of a young black man searching for his place in the world amidst a moment of historic change. Great Expectations is about David's 18 months working for the senator's presidential campaign. Along the way, David meets a myriad of people who raise a set of questions, questions of history, art, race, religion, and fatherhood that force David to look at his own life anew and come to terms with his identity as a young black man and father in America. Inspired by the author's experiences working on Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, Cunningham uses a political campaign as his narrative backbone. Great Expectations will be one of the talked about novels of the year, Colin McCann. Great Expectations is available wherever books are sold. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. You know, I think that this this concept of monstering is, is fundamental to uh, maintain the prison industrial complex, which is so lucrative based just on the numbers. Like, look, we, again, uh, incarcerate more people than any nation on earth, folks, <laughs> more than 2 million people, right? So this is big money. And the monstering aspect of it is interesting. And, and, and I'm glad you your book, Ben, it takes it personal 
because, you know, leading with my parents very deliberately, whenever I mention my parents' story, it takes that what seems like this opaque number where you can easily just say, ah, these blacks and browns in prison, these criminals. And then they say, wait, you're middle-aged, your senior citizen parents, your mom who makes dal, your nice, sweet dad, what? It just, it just, you could see the shock on their face. And I remember when my parents uh, were incarcerated, my mom said, in particular, she said, you know, I was in prison and many of the people who were with me are these young, otherwise very bright, creative women, overwhelmingly people of color and who were just poor. And so in addition to the racial component, uh, talk to us about the class component, which I think gets missed out here, because uh, I was reading a study that said that 80% of people who are incarcerated are poor, 80%. So in addition to race, which is, you know, we've talked about this on the show, and we'll always talk about it. Uh, uh, apparently, not everyone who has economic anxiety gets to fail up in life based on their melanin. But how much does class uh, need to be taken into account and poverty need to be quote, unquote, corrected to uh, end this vicious, and I think it's fair to say useless cycle of recidivism yeah, that yeah. doesn't really rehabilitate anyone just destroys communities. Yeah, yeah. Thanks again. Uh, you know, it's, it's not a mystery. That that the vast majority of people who commit crimes are are those who are impoverished and and it's usually young men who uh, l- lack opportunities and who are impoverished. That's true in the United States. It's true across the world. And you know, in this country, we had a, a war on poverty uh, under the Johnson administration in mid-century that we actually thought about investing in in social safety net programs. Um, it turned into that's a that's crazy talk, crime. Ben. I yeah, won't I have that I socialism here. It, you know, I'm not making it up. But then we turned to a war on crime at the same time that that we were uh, ramping up um, policies to uh, incarcerate more people to 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 meet um, offenses with a, a more certain prison uh, term. We were also slashing the social safety net. These two things went hand in hand. That's what generates mass incarceration. You're right. I mean, people who who are committing all sorts of crimes are ones who are, or you know, often in need. Not every crime. I mean, people can find exceptions, um, but but we know that that fighting poverty, the root causes of crime, it works. I mean, and and we abandon that. Uh, in the book, uh, you know, I, I took a trip to Finland and Norway, and I write about this some in the book. Um, Finland had the same incarceration rate as the United States around in the 1970s. They were part of the former Soviet Union and they broke and then they actually wanted to, you know, they realized they wanted to be more like their, their Scandinavian neighbors. And so they're like, we need to change things. And they started to change all these policies around punishment, even like kind of small things, which, which we do now and then, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, a three to five year sentence or, or um, alternatives to incarceration. But at the same time, they embraced the social safety net model of their Scandinavian neighbors. Those two things went hand in hand. And now they have the lowest incarceration rate in the world while we've skyrocketed. Those two things together, um, you're exactly right. Um, That's what we need to do. Um, And it's a kind of, it's, you know, it's a generosity. It's also a sense of a a commitment. Um, It's also getting past a lot of, of racism. Um, it's, you know, a lot of, uh, individualism, which we're, we're like, you know, uh, criminally obsessed with that, you know, you do it on your own. Um, yeah, but, but we think of all these ways of, uh, of American exceptionalism, 
you know, that we're the best. You know, even our current president, Biden, talks all the time about, you know, we're Americans, we can do anything. Mm. There are all sorts of measures, but we're not even just not the best, but we're not even like fifth, you know, like among wealthy (laughs) countries, we are the absolute bottom. And, Mm -hmm. and it's not just things like mass incarcerated in prison numbers, but things like, you know, child mortality, like, like overdose deaths, like what, like, what are we doing? You know, the, the, the income gap, you know, these things that are, are, um, detrimental to our society. Like we have all the measures that show we're at the bottom. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's clear as, as day. You know, what I find that America has been the best at is PR right? We're, we're the best at public relations. We're the best at, at spinning a narrative um, that says that we're better than the numbers actually imply for all of the things that you just listed out and more. And I think that what, what is really problematic is that when you start to decouple um, people from their humanity, right? You can have these monstrous type tales that say that in order for us to remain safe, we need to put um, either a wall, a prison, you know, bars and distance between us and those other people over there. And then if you continue to have Hollywood and other, and other outlets enforce the narrative of danger around these people, then we don't care. We're like, throw them away and lock up, you know, you know, put them away and and throw away the key. And I think that, you know, just going back to what you said at the top, we call these facilities correctional facilities. We yeah. call the officers that preside over these correctional officers. And my question is like, what are we actually trying to correct? Because if we are, if we were actually locking up people with the thought that they were going to regain freedom at some point and resume being a part of society, then our facilities wouldn't look the way that they did. Yeah. Right. Because what we're creating with these monstrous type systems and these prisons and all of the complications that come with freedom, you would know that what you're doing is hardening quote unquote monsters and then putting them right back in said communities. And so in your talk to us about the ways that, that the narratives of real people, 50 years, right? Like what is the crime that for 50 years you're going up against a jury of your a parole board of your peers that says that you don't deserve freedom. And yeah. so I'm just like, what, what is it that, that, that these stories you hope will offer, you know, to the people that are reading them and, 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 and for us to be able to reimagine, right. What society could look like the way that Finland did. Yeah. Well, I mean, so, so a parole board, uh, when they, when they meet someone at the 10 year mark or the 20 year mark or the 30 year mark, or even the 50 year mark, their job in many ways is to say, what have you done since the crime? Like, that's what parole is. Like, like, have you changed? Are you rehabilitated? Are you remorseful? Those are really hard things to measure. And there are all sorts of ways that parole is problematic. But um, maybe the, the, the way that it's most problematic is parole boards often tend to, to repeat what a sentencing judge or a jury does at trial, that they're obsessed with the original crime. So you know, they're saying like, what did you do? And is it so horrible that you should not get out? And I think for all of us, the kind of kind of question you're asking, and I'm thinking about your parents too, like we didn't ask, what did they do? You know, and, and, you know, the question I think a parole board asks, which is really powerful is like, who are they now? Who are they now? 
And that's different, you know, and it's, it's not ignoring victims. You know, that's important that victims are, are, are part of this story as well. And, and that, you know, especially crimes that have victims um, and that, um, but parole and what we do now doesn't serve victims well either. Um, you know, I went, I went to these parole hearings and after 50 years of someone being in prison for 50 years, the families of victims still felt no release. Some, uh, that it's proof that a system is, is not providing something necessary, something restorative, something that, 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 you know, brings healing or even moving on. Um, yeah. So that question of like, I really find that powerful. And the two men I write about, Johnny Veal and Michael Henderson, it's really like you get to see, you see what they did the crimes they did, or one of them was convicted of and said he didn't do, but one did do. But it's also, you see over, you know, as the years pass, well, what are they doing now? Who are they? What have they become? People change, people grow up, they evolve. I mean, especially the, the most crimes are committed by people who are about 17 to 25, the vast majority of crimes. And we know from even, even brain science that people, their, their brains change. You know, mm-hmm. that they, they, they yep. develop impulse control. Uh, and so uh, people people literally grow up. And, well, even and, us, like, you know, yeah. we, we change. We're at that age where <laughs> I'm not, God, I'm not the same person I was at 23. I don't want to be the same person I was at 23. Yeah. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from Mac Blue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. And and I'm glad that your book focuses on people because the only way I think to change the system, if it can be changed, is if enough of our fellow Americans start to care and you care through narratives. And and you know, speaking about the people, I remember there's that scene in Shawshank Redemption, which uh, I think it it can help it crystallize it where. Like you say, if you've seen the movie, spoiler alert, but if you've seen the movie Morgan Freeman's in prison, he's, he's playing this character called Red who's in life in prison for this crime he did like as a teenager. He killed someone. And throughout the movie, there's these three sections of the movie. Uh, like 10 years on, they ask the, he goes in front of the parole board. He's all, you know, he has a prepared script. He has a smile on his face. And he wants to tell them exactly what they want to say, whether or not he's been rehabilitated. They mark him rejected. Second time he comes up 20 years later, a little bit more old, grisly. Uh, a little bit more bitter, but then still plays the game and they reject him. They're not convinced he's rehabilitated. At the end, he's 70 years old and he answers the question in a way. He says, I really don't care. I I live my life 
there's not a day that goes by that I, I regret the decision. I'm a different person. So you go ahead and stamp that form. Yeah. And spoiler alert, that's when they actually yeah. say that he's rehabilitated. You know, I, I say all this because I, I taught at San Quentin. A, t- a friend of mine uh, was teaching these, a lot of these folks are on death row. And these were some of the brightest students, Ben, I'd ever met. And they, they read my play and I had a day with them. And, you know, another friend of mine uh, taught some folks in New York. So I did the same thing. And then she said, you know, I read, I read their essays and I feel so bad because these students are so bright and so smart and so committed, the best students I've had. And they made a mistake years ago. And many of these folks, she said this was the through line, which broke my heart. She said, these men, these hard, tough men said, you know, life would have been so different if I just had someone who put their hand on my shoulder. If I just had someone who guided me, if I just had someone who believed in me, or just one person. And so I, I, I think here, I, and you know, I, I see this system that is so brutal. And I remember I wrote this in my book, Plug. I said, <laughs> going through what my parents went through, I saw the prison industrial complex as Galactus, the, the, the fictional character in Fantastic Four who eats worlds. It's the destroyer of worlds. It's a destroyer of generations. And with that personal story, of these two individuals, I don't think people connect the dots. And if you can crystallize for us, it just doesn't affect the person who's incarcerated. You know, this, this impacts that family, that community and generations. Can you give us an example of how this system breaks generations? Yeah. I mean, completely, you know, that, that we have millions and millions of children growing up with, with at least one parent in prison. Uh, and, you know, and to grow up in a household where we would want people to be to have both of their parents there, to have a parent there. And it also normalizes prison as an experience, you know, in, in communities. Um, and then and then you get this cycle, as you're describing, where people are, are released. Most people are released from prison and they're they're not you know, they haven't been helped in any way to, to reacclimate. And they're going back to the same neighborhoods and they're they're inundating these neighborhoods. and um, it does create this kind of vicious cycle, as you described, um, and it is generational. It is it destroys entire communities and it destroys generations of people. Uh, yeah, and and I just want to add what you were saying about you know I've taught in prisons as well, and with this work I go into prisons. We do this thing more than anyone else. We should be required to see it. We should just mm. have, all of us should be required to go in. Every law student should have to spend like a rotation for a medical school should have to go into prison at some point. Absolutely see, agree. See what the end product of, of, of the legal system is for, for many people. People should have to really experience this thing. And, you know, what we do in America, the prisons are usually far away from, from urban centers. Communication is made really difficult. We should at least have to see this thing and have these kinds of conversations of being like, well, what do we really feel? What do we really think? And if, if we decide as a as a people like, no, we really believe in warehousing people and just being, you know, retri- you know, retribution is kind of punishment or kind of like revenge. If we really believe that, I mean, maybe we do by default, but like that's a conversation that we should be having. We shouldn't believe that, but but we should know what we're doing and we should have these kinds of talks about it and we should really think about what our values are. Danielle, I know we're wrapping up, but I just want to just quickly add on. I think, Ben, you're on to something. Uh, if I just can quickly say that this complete absence uh, or, or uh, of narrative 
that exists in the in the mindset of those people who create policies the the the, the literal lack of awareness and knowledge right and i just want to share a personal story just a couple of weeks ago i was meeting a bunch of my college friends after 20 years and they read my book and they found out about my parents many of them are attorneys some of them might run for office and they heard about this and you know a lot of them are upper middle class upper class suburban they grew up with the narrative of pull yourself up from these bootstraps why can't they just work harder and then they heard the parent the story of my parents and what i went through and then many of them said i think it should be like mandatory that our elders take us to prison and like meet people like we should be meeting folks in shelters like we really don't know our own neighbors who are low income and i think if we had access to that narrative, it can create empathy and maybe help change policy. So I think you're onto something that I wish, if anyone's listening right now, there are so many folks in your community who literally are impacted by the prison industrial complex. They don't talk about it. And it's very easy to demonize these people as monsters and criminals, but they're humans. And many of them made a mistake and they've been, they've literally have to spend the rest of their lives being punished for it. And not just them, their children are being punished for it. So your book, uh, I appreciate it by telling these two narratives and these two stories. I hate using this word because we're all human beings, but you humanize a story that is often told through statistics and violence. So I appreciate it. And I really think people should read it. The, the book is called Correction, um, Parole, Prison, and the Possibility of Change by Ben Austin. It was released recently. It's a fantastic book. And, and thank you for coming on uh, and sharing the story. Thank you. Really, Thank you, guys. Yeah. Really appreciate you, Ben. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. And I'm Ajat Ali. And we will be back next week, if, in fact, we have a country left. Inshallah. <laughs> <laughs>